This is Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Just to let you know, we have a vodcast on YouTube where you can watch the edited highlights of the episode. And don't forget to subscribe. If you fancy the full audio version, symbols, just keep listening. Oh, and if you've got a second, please give us five stars and a review. It really helps us stand out and get this important message to even more people that need to hear it the most. Meantime, enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Winnie M. Lee. She is an author and activist. Her debut novel, Dark Chapter, is a fictional retelling of her real-life stranger rape in Belfast from victim and perpetrator perspectives. Translated now into 10 languages, it won The Guardian's Not Booker Prize and was nominated for an Edgar Award and the Best First Novel Award. She is currently adapting it for the screen. Her second novel, Complicit, was published in summer 2022 and selected by the New York Times for their August book club. Winnie is also the founder of Clear Lines, the UK's first ever festival addressing sexual assault and consent through the arts and discussion. Her PhD research at the London School of Economics explores media engagement by rape survivors as a form of activism. She holds an honorary doctorate from the National University of Ireland in recognition of her writing and activism. So welcome to the show, Winnie. Lovely to have you here. Immediately after my trauma, I felt like I was never going to go back to being the person I was before and all the joy in the world and, you know, all the skills I had had suddenly vanished. And I think that was in some ways the hugest sense of loss for me. Um, But then a few years on, I realized I was able to actually do those things I had done before. And if anything, I was, you know, had a new perspective on life um, and maybe a more uh, measured one. Other survivors and realizing that if they were able to get to a place where they could write about it and also recover, then maybe that was a possibility for me as well. I wanted to show how cruel the criminal justice system can be to a victim. You know, I used to work in the film industry and I'm a sexual assault survivor. So when the Weinstein allegations broke, I was not surprised (laughs) in a lot of ways because I'm like, oh yeah, of course Harvey Weinstein does this to young women because this is kind of rampant throughout the industry. How are you doing? Good, yeah, it's the end of the summer, um, sadly, but you know, that that is life. (laughs) Um, And I'm looking forward to the autumn. Great. So because the show is called Unbroken, the first question I ask all of my guests is, what does the word unbroken mean to you? Um, So I guess for me, it means being able to retain the essence of who you are, uh, despite everything that gets thrown at you in life and despite everything that that you have to go through sometimes. Um, Yeah, so for me, I guess, um, when I think about my immediately after my trauma I felt like I was never going to go back to being the person I was before and all the joy in the world and you know all the skills I had had suddenly vanished and I think that was in some ways the hugest sense of loss for me um but then a few years on I realized I was able to actually do those things I had done before and if anything I was you know had a new perspective on life um and maybe a more uh, measured one um and so I suppose in that sense, like, even though I had felt broken before, I realized that because I had still, at the end of it, I was still me, I was still the Winnie I was before the rape, then that actually meant I was sort of unbroken in a, in a certain way. I love it. And it's actually the words that you're saying could even come out of my mouth. I always say that the true essence of who I am, who I am can never be taken away. They can never touch that or destroy that. So we actually met because we're both sexual violence activists. We met through our friend Imogen, I believe, when we went to see her play many years ago. And I've followed your path over the years and just blown away by your persistence and your determination to make changes for survivors. Why is it so important to you? 
I, so it's interesting because I, you know, for me, I was 29 when my rape happened. So like any girl growing up, then woman, you become, you're very, you're aware of the fact that there's something rape called a rape that's out there and it's a bad thing and you don't want it to happen to you. But I'd never actually considered it as something that could be part of my own reality. So I happily went through 29 years of my life, um, traveling a lot, often on my own, um, leading a pretty adventurous life, um, thinking I was not. I suppose, immune to that kind of violence or thinking that was just completely off my radar. And then, you know, one day I went for a walk in the park uh, in Belfast and I was followed by a stranger and I was raped. And kind of from that moment on, my life was fundamentally changed as it would be, you know, for any victim or any survivor. Um, so the fact that, you know, and I had years of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, um, it obviously completely changed my my career trajectory. Um and uh, to think that something like that can happen that quickly and that unexpectedly and that we're so unaware of the impacts it has on victims and that it's often the victims that have to that are left to having to you know pick up the pieces of their life and put their life back together again. Um, it just it just struck me as so unjust that the reality of sexual violence isn't really understood um, more broadly by the public. So there's that side of it, but then there's also the need for other survivors and victims to, to speak with each other and to realize that this is a shared experience. Um, and for me, I found a lot of strength and I suppose hope in. Uh, being able to read memoirs that other people have written, you know, in, in the immediate years after my assault, um, other survivors and realizing that if they were able to get to a place where they could write about it and also recover, then maybe that was a possibility for me as well. So that sense of kind of like leaving a trail for other victims and survivors, um, because sadly there will be more, um, and sharing your experience and realizing that that is something they can connect to and hopefully find this bit of hope in um, is something that um, I felt is quite important. Um, so it's that and also building community among survivors. Well, you are definitely doing that. And your first book, Dark Chapters, you decided to do as a fiction. And you did one chapter from your point of view and one chapter from the rapist's point of view. Why did you choose that approach? Was it to have some kind of understanding into what could possibly go on in the mind of a, a person that chooses to commit that crime? Yeah, I mean, it was precisely that. I mean, and, and some of it was because, as I said, I'd, I'd read lots of memoirs out there and there are fantastic memoirs by um, rape victims, which um, brought me a lot of um, hope at a certain point. But I also wanted to do something new uh, that I hadn't seen before, um, you know, in writing. So I hadn't seen something where you had the the perpetrator's point of view intertwined with the victims. Um, and so for me, that was sort of an artistic challenge and also obviously a kind of a humanist challenge, right? Like, can I, can I write half a book from the viewpoint of somebody who, you know, was my perpetrator? Um, so yeah, fiction allowed me to kind of enter his character a bit and try to make sense of what could have happened in his life that led to him committing the act of violence against me. Um, so, and also it was kind of an easier, it's not easier, but it made, it balanced out writing my own sections, right? Because writing Vivian's sections, Vivian is kind of the victim character is very similar to me. Um, it was like basically reliving like the worst period of my life, right? So if I was just writing that, I would have been incredibly depressed, right? Um, and it was tough to write those sections, but I was able to kind of always at least balance that out by writing Johnny. And even though his life isn't, you know, a basket of roses either, um, being able to create another character and kind of in investigate another life was kind of an act of creation of creativity that was at least interesting for me. So um, it kind of made the creative process more interesting as well um, and rewarding, I guess. And did you come up with any answers why men will choose to rape women? Did it help you to have an understanding? 
Um, yeah, I think so. I, mean, I, I hope so. I mean, because, you know, at the end of the day, it's a 400-page novel. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm never going to actually know I mean, in terms of that real-life individual. I mean, I, I, I don't know that much about that individual person, which is why I wrote it as fiction. I just took, like, the few facts that I knew and kind of created a character out of him. The few facts I knew were but that he was... The main thing was that he was 15 years old. So, and I was 29 at the time. So the fact that somebody half my age could have done this thing to me which then changed the course of my life um was just so ironic and sad and horrific in its own way and and it really made me think about you know what had happened in his 15 years on this earth that had led him to doing that um so i i will never know the actual real life individual and i've since found out he has been linked to other sexual assaults um in belfast as recently as you know this january um he's so that released from prison isn't he he's sent he was sentenced to eight years is that right and he, he was sentenced to eight yeah he served four so um you know 20 2008 was the was the rape he was out by you know 2012 right you know so that's during which time i was rebuilding my life and i moved to another part of the world and they came back to the uk um so part of me thought that okay i never have to think about this person again even though i was writing a whole book about him or half a book about him but me writing half the book about him was kind of trying to put to rest the notion of him in my head right um even though that real life person is out there um but then i did find out you know through social media that he has since been linked to other um rapes or at least sexual assaults in belfast which is and what does that do to your mind um i don't even know where to start because it's on one hand i can get really angry right and that makes perfect sense right because i i kind of feel like i went through hell in terms of the criminal justice process, right? Like I did everything, quote unquote, the victim is supposed to do, right? Um, if we're going to be judged by the public, right? <laughs> you know, so, you know, we're supposed to report to the police right away. Um, and I did, right? Um, and we're supposed to, com- you know, comply with the police and comply with the criminal justice process, which is a very harrowing process for somebody that's just gone through the trauma of rape. Um, and I did all that. And it was... Um, you know, that was the worst period of my life, having to wait for the trial, thinking that I was going to have to fly back to Belfast one day and sit in a courtroom in front of him and tell my side of the story in in public, effectively, right? In in a very kind of antagonistic atmosphere, which is, you know, what a courtroom is um, for a victim. Um, so, yeah, so that was, you know, months of dreading that. And then at the last minute, you know, so I, so I flew there and at the last minute, um, the morning of the trial, while the jury was being selected, um, my barristers came in and said, well, there's actually been a change and he's decided to plead guilty. Which um, he could have done at any given point. Yeah, so he didn't have to go to trial. He could have also done that at any given point prior to then, because that was like a whole year, effectively, mm-hmm. after the assault. Um, and I just remember being so much in shock, thinking like, I don't wait, what? You know, like, so he's actually going to plead guilty. So that means I, I don't have to testify. Right. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I, I'm okay with that. Right. Like, what are you going to say? Right. I was in so much shock because at that sudden um, twist of, of um, events. Right. Um, so in some ways I never got that um, trial, which is did, fine. Did you want your day in court? Did you want to stand there and, and say what had happened or you were quite no. relieved? No, I was relieved. I mean, more than anything, I was relieved. But it was such a, it was so jarring to go, to be dreading something, anticipating something for months and suddenly to be told, actually, you know, it's not going to happen and everything's fine, right? Um, or as fine as it could be. Um, so it was really quite, so I was relieved. 
my friends were like jumping up and down with victory but i was just like well I, you know i can't i mean yeah i'm relieved i don't have to testify and but like i'm still a rape victim here right you know um i still had to you know still have to deal with everything that you know was inflicted upon me and and the aftermath um so yeah so i was relieved but i you know at the part of me at the back of my head was thinking like okay well what would a trial have been like right I, and like I am quite glad I didn't have to do it, but I'm conscious of the fact that many other victims have had to do that in the name of justice, sit through a trial and testify in front of their perpetrator. Um, so I wrote that into the novel, basically, and I decided, okay, well, I'm going to do a lot of research. And I spoke to barristers, I spoke to the public prosecution service, sat in on a number of rape trials, um, just so I could try to like recreate what the trial could have gone like, right? And I would, I wanted to show how cruel the criminal justice system can be to a victim um so i wrote that so it's very weird to have that in the novel and to have kind of like written the novel and put that to rest in my work my artistic work but then also in real life to realize all that work i did in terms of not just not the book but you know complying with the police going through that whole process mm -hmm. kind of for naught because he's now still out there assaulting other women right um so yeah, I can get incredibly angry about that, right? Like, what is the criminal justice system doing if they're still allowing a convicted rapist to be out there, you know, causing trauma to other women? Um, but then, and I think this is tied to my more to my own personal recovery, I just kind of realized, you know, I can get really fraught and angry about that, but that's not going to help me in terms of, like, moving forward on my life path, right? Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm at a point now where you know, it's 14 years since the assault happened. I'm living a life that I never could have imagined I would have been able to do um, after the assault. Like, I, you know, I have a toddler that I'm raising. You know, my second book has just been published. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, and the you screenplay, know, I'm, I'm fascinated about seeing it on screen. How will that be for you to watch it? Because it's very different. I remember being invited to Ireland, to Cork to go to mm. see Louise O'Neill's asking yeah. for it at the premiere. Yeah. And I thought I was in a really good place and it really triggered something deep in me. And I, I, I struggled that night, but I was um, aware enough to realize it was just old stuff coming up. How will it be to watch your story? Um, yeah, well, I don't know. It's, it's still so far along in the process. Like we don't even know if the film's going to get made. Right. So it's one thing to like write the screenplay. And then there's so many others as a former film producer, I can tell you, like once you have a screenplay, that's yes. very far from the film being made. Um, but just to go back to what I was saying earlier about, um, you know, I can get really angry about my perpetrator still being out there, but you know, I had to kind of make a decision where it's like, you know, I, I have my own life I'm trying to lead here and I, there's no point in getting caught up about what he's doing. Because he came into my life, assaulted me, you know, I had to deal with the fallout for many years, but like I'm following my own path now. And yes, it's a shame that he's out there assaulting other women, but it's not going to be productive or it's not going to be benefiting me in any way mm -hmm. to continue to be drawn back into like the emotions, the negative emotions, uh, the anger. That and you make I such an important point that you decided so you can choose to be angry or you can choose not to be angry because yeah. at the end of the day you deserve peace with it all yeah. really don't you and it's an interesting yeah. point you make because people have negatively said to me well you didn't report what happened to you which meant that they could go on to rape other people well if they are convicted and they get a short sentence they can still go on to rape other people so again it's just that horrible victim blaming that that people do which kind of follows nicely onto your new book really because complicit is really all about the misogyny, the sexism, the, the victim blaming in the film world, which you really 
know too well. Can you tell us a little bit more about your second book, which is now out for people to read? Yeah. Um, so Complicit is, uh, yeah, I wrote it, it, I started writing it in 2018, but I came up with the idea um, in autumn of 2017, which is when the story in the book opens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to work in the film industry and I'm a sexual assault survivor. So when the Weinstein allegations broke, I was not surprised <laughs> in a lot of ways because I'm like, oh yeah, of course Harvey Weinstein does this to young women because this is kind of rampant throughout the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that that thought is a little bit jarring, right? Because you're like, well, with the fact that I, you know, it's like, oh, well, of course this happens, like kind of shrugging, you know, um, means that it's incredibly normalized um, in the film industry. Um, and so what was interesting was that um, I was speaking to somebody else shortly after the allegations broke, who doesn't work in film, doesn't work in film. And she was like, I don't understand why Harvey Weinstein, if it was an open secret and it kind of was in the industry that he treated women in a certain way, um, why was he allowed to continue doing it? And I remember thinking, okay, well, clearly you've never worked in film. Um, and there is an entire structure of power. There's an entire structure of, you know, young talent really wanting to make their mark and get their foot in the door. Um, and and the money the- as well, I would say. Yeah. The power and yeah. the money and all of that. Yeah. And the money is the power, effectively, as much as we want to think it's about something else. It really is about who has the money to fund a film and who has the money to to promote a film in a good way that'll get it to the Oscars, right? Which Harvey Weinstein was very good at doing. Um, So I kind of wanted to write a book that depicted that whole world and showed what it would be like for a young woman who wants to make her mark in film because she loves movies um, to start her career and pursue that and think that she's going to get far and actually to have her realize that there's obstacles she runs up against which have nothing to do with her talent her ability to work hard it's all about her being a woman and in this case coming from a certain class and being of a certain race which is not the dominant race or class um that you tend to see in the film industry so um so the novel opens with a new york times journalist um sending her an email out of the blue or sarah getting an email out of the blue from this journalist saying oh, i've got a few questions about this um, producer that you used to work with and her just thinking like oh wow am i gonna am i gonna answer this email am i gonna tell this story or not um and along the way as as you as she tells her story you kind of hear her story of how she started in the film industry um and encountered this individual um and you realize she may not have she may have been a little bit complicit in things that um, happened um, in terms of uh, this guy having power and abusing his power. Uh, because when you work in film, you kind of have to follow somebody else's orders until you're the top dog, right? And that, then she wasn't. Um, and so she lost her career in the film industry um, 10 years ago. So the book kind of allows Sarah to tell her story and for us to it, kind of... It reflect. starts with her now teaching, doesn't it? At just yeah. a college and she's teaching about film and, and that's how the story unfolds. And it's it's so brilliantly done because actually, yes, it is based in the film industry, but it could be any industry really because all of the the messages that we hear, you know, we hear certain presidents telling us that we can grab them by the pussy or it's just locker talk, all of that. You know, when we, when guys or whatever get WhatsApp jokes and they don't do anything about it, when we laugh and, you know, when we just encourage each other, men normally, it's, it's all being complicit really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and we may not think it at the time because, you know, the weird thing about the social situations that we find ourselves in is a lot of times, uh, you know, we're just kind of nod and laugh, right? Because you don't want to call attention to yourself or, you know, or seem out of place. Um, You know, I think we all want to be accepted socially in some way or other. Um, But it's that kind of silent acceptance of 
certain kinds of behavior, which enables that behavior to continue. And, and if you think about Weinstein, I mean, it's hundreds of women that he assaulted, right? And he was allowed to continue doing that. And every single one of those women, as you and I know, has their own story and quite rightly, you know, had a career that was probably thwarted and never quite realized because of that interaction. You know, it could have even just been a few minutes interaction with that individual and that each of those lives would have had trauma as a result of what happened. Um, but, you know, so many of those women, we don't actually know their names. It's it's Weinstein is the big name. So I guess I want to write a book that sees it from the point of view of one of those women who who isn't famous, who isn't an A-lister, um, and herself has some kind of, I guess, unresolved guilt over how she may have played a role um, in this person abusing power. And is it... Um semi-autobiographical is it based on what you saw when you were working within the film industry or, or what had happened to you in there yeah i mean i wouldn't go so far as to say semi-autobiographical i mean dark chapter obviously is yeah. this one like you know i feel like you need to have worked in the film industry to have been able to kind of capture well that came across so well you obviously know the industry far too well unfortunately yeah that yeah across. <laughs> okay well that's good um so i kind of there's a lot of things that people that don't work in film don't understand about film so i kind of wanted to like have it be a how-to and like this is how films are made right so the past story as sarah tells the journalist it kind of follows the making of a particular film which stars uh, Holly Randolph, who is now an A-lister, but back then that was like her breakout role. Um, so I kind of want to show how films get made, even from like the early scripting stage to trying to get funding, to like actually being filmed, to then being put up for awards. Um, and to show that, you know, behind this kind of manufactured facade of glamour, there's a lot of hard work and, you know, inequality and actually like trauma as well in some ways. Um, so and years that... and years and years to get somewhere really as well. It's not just overnight, is it? It's a yeah, long yeah, exactly. process. Yeah. And and it's not a fair process by any means. Right. A lot of times the films get that get made or because the people behind them have contacts, essentially. Right. You know, and have access to money. Um, so at the end of the day, it, it's very much not a meritocracy. And, you know, and Sarah is a child of immigrants. Um, her parents came from Hong Kong. They were in the Chinese restaurant in New York. Um, so they think maybe a bit naively that if you just start a job and you work hard and listen to everything your boss asks you to then you know you're going to go far in your career and actually that's not how the film industry works um and somebody can be incredibly talented and hardworking and still never get their break because they're not in the right social circles right um so i kind of wanted to portray that but then also you know sarah does work with a number of other women um before she has hugo as her boss um there's a female boss that she has um who is in some ways mentoring towards her and in other times feels threatened by Sarah. Um, you know, she develops a, a relation, a friendship with Holly, um, the kind of up and coming actress. Um, and there's other women that she works with. Um, so throughout the book, there's kinds of snippets of transcripts um, where the journalist has interviewed some of these other women. Mm -hmm. So we get a different a sense of the other perspectives that other women may have had around this particular individual um, and what he was doing during the course of this film um, being made. Um, so yeah, I kind of wanted to provide like an interesting glimpse of the filmmaking process to readers. And then there are little anecdotes sprinkled in there, which are taken from my real life experience. So when I went to the Cannes Film Festival, you know, there's this image of Cannes as being incredibly glamorous and all these things happen at kind of five-star hotels, but it's, you know, accommodation is really expensive um, at Cannes and like a tiny apartment is going to cost a lot. So I shared an apartment with, I think, seven other people 
and there were five beds and there was one key and we just kind of like kept the key in the potted plant by the door didn't matter there were five beds because there was never none of us were all there at the same time because people were like coming back from parties at five in the morning and stuff like that um so even though just like a 10 minute walk away people were staring staying in like the hotel martinez and like incredible luxury here's like seven like 20 somethings you know (laughs) trying to make their way in the film industry who are like sharing five beds um in a tiny apartment um so it's like kind of stuff like that where um that was drawn from real life and i kind of sprinkled that in because i just you know wanted to capture kind of the inequality of that it was it was pretty full-on manic chaotic all-consuming 100 miles an hour industry do do you miss that crazy lifestyle at all or yes and no um i mean i think so my career ended because of the rape and you know like as i said it was a stranger who raped me but i didn't you know i wasn't able i had ptsd and you know um, trauma and everything so i couldn't actually perform my my high my demanding job right um it's not a very nurturing or welcoming environment anyway you've got to be in a good place so i can imagine when you're feeling like that you, you yeah. couldn't cope impossible yeah yeah exactly so and it's interesting because for a while for a few months i did try to like keep on doing you know what i was doing before as a film producer and then i'm like you know i i just can't do this so um and then when i was able to work again so i basically kind of just threw myself into you know whatever you have to do for the criminal justice process um and then even after um my rapist was convicted i then felt even more depressed because i was like oh actually i've done everything like i you know i haven't won but like you know like justice has won out in this situation and i've done everything i'm supposed to have done as a victim but like my life is still shit right i don't have a job um and i couldn't go back to my work because that job you know the, the company had restructured and this and that right um and then, so essentially, how do you get a job in film after that? Well, you have to network your way to a job because there's, it's not like there's that many posts that get advertised in the film world. Or if they do, you know, you're never going to get them unless you know somebody in the company. So I just didn't have it in me to be networking a year after my rape, you know, and trying to make up an excuse for why I hadn't worked for the past year. Because you can't say in a job interview, oh, I was violently raped by a stranger, right? And that's why I wasn't working. Because then they're going to think, oh, maybe she's not capable of her job anymore, which is incredibly unjust right you know um so i kind of lost my whole career as a film producer um and there's there is sadness about that and on my bitter probably not bitter about it but you know i am sad and i miss the fact that you know i used to go to the Cannes film festival for my job and i used to be able to go to screenings and you know lead that kind of really exciting life of putting a film together um so I think I was channeling that when I was writing Complicit in terms of, okay, here's a 39-year-old woman, Sarah's 39, when the, when the novel opens, who is bitter about having lost her job and and sad about no longer being in that industry. Um, so I was channeling some of that. Um, but in the meantime, you know, it, 10 years had passed and I had become much more aware of not just sexual violence, but general misogyny in our society. So I'd realized that, oh no, the industry is an incredibly misogynistic place. And you have this image of glamour and and luxury, but behind it, there is all this inequality, there's all this injustice, and I kind of wanted to write a book that showed that, I suppose. Well, it definitely does. (laughs) Has the writing been a healing process for you with both of the books? Has that helped you on on your journey to healing? 
don't know if I would say that. I mean, with Dark Chapter, I I definitely had to recover to a point where I was able to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was writing all the time anyway because I am a writer, and writer writing is what I do to kind of make sense of the world and life and stuff. So, um, with Dark Chapter, I I came up with the idea for actually just a few weeks after the assault, but it was just stayed at the back of my head, and I'm like, okay, I'm in no state in my in my life to be able to write a novel. So I waited about five and a half years to write that. Uh, and by that point, I'd kind of I'd found a different career and I was earning a decent salary. Uh, and again, I made a deliberate decision to leave that career track where I would probably be earning more money <laughs> these days, right, um, to write that book I always wanted. So in that sense, I felt like I had done a fair amount of healing before I started writing Dark Chapter. And writing Dark Chapter allowed me to put a lot of questions to rest and it allowed me to, I guess, transform a pretty dark episode in my life into a book that has connected with people. So that is positive. Um, even the, even to... the chapter is brilliant because I think we all have dark chapters, whether it's about sexual violence or not, we all have a dark chapter within us that maybe we don't want to look at or don't want to touch. But actually at the end of the day, it's working these dark chapters is what's is what heals us really, doesn't it? Yeah. So I guess when I, finally wrote that book and it got published and I started, you know, being able to establish a career as an author, like that was the beginning of a, a new chapter, a bright chapter. So I guess you can call it, yeah, I imagine that's healing. Um, with Complicit, yeah, I guess you can say it allowed me to address some of the unresolved feelings I had about no longer working in film and my ambivalence about the film industry. Despite, I mean, I still love movies. I 100% absolutely love movies, and I miss being able to make them. But I don't miss working in an industry that is um, incredibly unfair and, and kind of chaotic and um, probably not good for your mental health, right? So um, so I kind of, I guess, writing complicit allowed me to um, deal with those emotions, I suppose. Um, is that healing? I don't know. I guess some people might call that healing. Um, but again, it's, you know, each of these books has taken my author career um to another level so that has helped and that you know at the end of the day if you asked six-year-old winnie what i wanted to do i would have said i wanted to be a novelist so here i am at you know 43 and i'm a published novelist and so i guess that is a kind of continuity that i guess very accomplished and hugely successful novelist i would say Uh, do you have another book in the pipeline are you writing book number three as we speak uh yeah i mean i should be like i'm actually i'm finishing the screenplay right now which i can go back to a bit but um yeah i've got a third book that i'm working on um won't come out until 2024 i don't think so it's um yeah i also love traveling um and so prior to covid and prior to having a toddler uh, or having a baby i traveled a lot right um and then that obviously suddenly changed as it did for everybody in 2020 so i haven't traveled very much um so i decided i wanted to go on a road trip um, and have that be research for my next novel. So last autumn, my... Ah, I saw that little road trip, but no idea that was research. How brilliant. Yeah, so my partner and toddler and myself flew to Chicago last autumn and we drove Route 66. So we took three weeks to kind of drive from Chicago, you know, down through all those states um, over to to California. My parents live in California. Um, And that was, uh, I mean, it was a bit manic, you know, in terms of traveling that distance with a toddler, but um, it was also great. And it also, you know, 
I guess to go back to what you're saying about being unbroken, like that allowed me to kind of realize, oh no, that that joy of traveling is still there, even though I'm in a different place in my life. I've got a toddler and all that. Um, I can't travel in exactly the same way, but there's still so many places out there to discover. So um, yeah, so that is kind of background research for my next book, which is about a road trip, but can't really say much more about okay. it because it's still pretty early stages. Sounds intriguing. But just before we kind of sign off here, do you have any advice for anyone listening in or anything that you haven't said that you would like to say to us now? Um, just that, I mean, you never know what's around the corner, right? You know, and sometimes that's bad, right? In my, in, in my case, I went for a walk one Sunday and then I encountered this individual and became a rape victim within by the end of that day and that changed the course of my life um but then sometimes that could be a positive thing right um and i um never expected to meet my partner um i mean madeline you've known me from when i was single right and then i I basically i didn't i had terrible experiences dating after the assault because i was just so angry about you know misogyny and like and like and also dating you know in london these days is not easy right um you get ghosted a lot you know i don't think online dating is like a helpful way to actually meet people that want to have a serious relationship um so yeah so i just kind of given up on it and i'd had serious situations where i was dumped and, I, and like somewhere at the back of my head I always nursed like okay could I be a parent? Do I want to be a mother? But that just seemed impossible to me because I'd never, I mean, I didn't even have a boyfriend. So how was I going to, and I was not earning a huge amount of money, so I couldn't afford IVF and being a single mother in some ways. Um, And then sort of out of the blue, I hired a therapist and I was like, okay, I turned 40 and I'm like, if I ever want to become a mother, I probably at least need to go on a few dates or something. So I hired a therapist (laughs) to get me to, um, to go on some dates. And then he, he did that. And then on the third date, I met my partner and then, three months later I unexpectedly became pregnant um so that was not expected at all um and you never know what's around the corner and sometimes it can be really good things um so just kind of realize that that's what life can offer you sometimes yeah it's everything isn't it but it's it's holding them all I guess and being okay with all but yeah it's is and I've met your little boy he's obviously changed greatly because he was only a few months old and he was a beautiful little boy I'm sure he's just a gorgeous little toddler now but we need we just wish you all the success with your your next book complicit is fantastic I have read it and thank you so much for coming on the show it's been brilliant thank you thanks Madeline unbroken healing through storytelling if you haven't already go on download subscribe give us a five-star rating it really helps us get this important and life-changing message out to as many people as possible there is already a selection of fantastic episodes to choose from and a brand new one coming soon unbroken healing through storytelling playing now on all the main platforms including apple podcasts spotify stitcher for android google podcasts amazon music and here play unbroken the podcast with Madeline Black.